0: Good day, everyone. I'm Ron Insana, and welcome to The U.S. Lens. As you know, the world has faced an energy crisis of late, given the invasion of Ukraine, the actions of OPEC and OPEC Plus to constrain production around the world, and higher demand in certain parts of the world for energy products, whether it's natural gas or crude oil, has created some price pressures in that arena. But also, once again, given those realities, the reality of climate change forced everyone to reassess what the green energy future looks like, both in the U.S. and around the world. Joining us now to talk about the green energy revolution is Saad Kass. He is with Schroeder's Green Coat and joined us now to talk about a variety of alternatives in the green energy space. Saad, thanks for being with us today. Ron, it's a pleasure to have, to be here. So Saad, let me ask you with respect to the current environment, in which there's a great deal of pressure around the world uh, in the near term for more conventional energy sources, whether it's in Europe because of Ukraine and the war going on there, or whether it's rising demand in other parts of the world. How do you navigate the short-term considerations of energy needs today versus the longer-term consideration of trying to have a greener and cleaner future?
1: So, Ron, the shorter term, we're going to need everything in the energy mix. So energy can be, power can be produced from nuclear, gas, hydro, wind, solar, amongst other things. We're gonna need pretty much everything that we can have at this point in time, given the constraints that we have on the supply side. In the longer term, there's going to be a transition towards more and more renewable energy, more and more carbon-free energy. And that's where wind and solar really pop out. Uh, Along with that, there's developments on the battery storage side that are common between electrification of the auto industry and the power grid that's gonna benefit both industries. But in the short term, it's going to be LNG being exported to Europe from the US, it's going to be wind, solar, wherever you can find it. The attraction of wind and solar is that it sun shines mostly everywhere or the wind blows everywhere. So you can have a grid that is quite balanced from a resource perspective and it's independent of any constraints, any fossil fuels, if you don't have those domestically available to you.
0: So I'm old enough to remember when Jimmy Carter uh, in the the 1970s was pushing wind and solar and, and, and clearly the world wasn't quite ready for it. Have we made enough advancement technologically to make these projects feasible, cost efficient, and with respect to not only taking in the power but distributing it, having enough infrastructure to make this all work?
1: I would say we have come a long way in terms of the cost reductions that exist today in these technologies. I'll give you an example that in just in 2010, the cost of wind was around $150 per megawatt hour and the cost for solar was close to $275 a megawatt hour. Compare that to today where on, on an unsubsidized basis, wind can be procured around 38 to $40 and solar can be around $35. Now, another comparison that I would say is that um, on a subsidized basis, <clears throat> these costs come down even further. I worked on a coal-fired financing about 10, 12 years ago where the cost of just the energy component of the coal-fired uh, contract was almost double of what wind would be today. So it has come a long way from that perspective. There's still a lot of work to be done, more specifically on the transmission grid. That is a problem and that is a constraint because the wind typically blows, at least for the US, it blows in the center part of the country from the, from the Dakotas all the way to Texas. That's where our windy corridor exists. But transmission needs to be built out so that that can be exported to the load centers on the East Coast primarily and east of Ohio as we get In that region.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up, because I know the late Boone Pickens had had attempted to, you know, capture that wind tunnel and and was turned back when it came to siting and licensing the transmission wires and, and the facilities you need to move that energy around the country. Have we made, certainly in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world, any progress on the ability to not just take in the energy, but to distribute it once it's collected?
1: It's a, it is still more regional. So we've made progress, for example, to transport energy from places like Iowa and even South Dakota to Chicago, but it's not nationally connected. We do act quite individually as states at this point from a transmission perspective or the system's perspective. So taking Texas as an example, the reason that Yuri, storm URI did so much damage in Texas in 2021 One reason for that was that Texas acts like an island when it comes to transmission capacity constraints. It doesn't connect itself to the other parts of the country, and that is what what caused one of the big um, uh, spikes in power.
0: All right, so let's talk about the process of investing in in, in wind and solar. Um, Obviously, those establishments are called farms. Why do you invest in them now, and what's what's the thesis that one would make um, without talking about specific investments that you're making, but the thesis behind investing in a wind farm or a solar farm or both?
1: So I would say that these assets are very long-term in nature. We typically expect wind farms to survive, to exist through 30-plus years, and solar is going to be in the same range, possibly 40 years. But the other thing is that once these locations are purposed for a wind farm or a solar farm, most likely they're going to remain that way through time. So this gives an opportunity to deploy in long-term assets and match long-term liabilities with long-term assets. So pension money or uh, other long-term investments that that need a home, wind and solar are a perfect match for that. The other component of that is that um, if managed properly, these investments can be fairly low risk in nature. They're not quite inerties, but they're, they're they can be quite close to it if they're contractually managed well. They're also hit the box on check the box on ESG and impact investing, so they're front and center for from an ESG standpoint. And investors get to participate in the energy transition. This is the fuel of the future. Um, so on a multiple level on multiple levels, these products, these investments make a lot of sense.
0: So what about the timing of putting dollars to work? Do you do it at the very beginning or is there a better time in which uh, to place those dollars at work in in a wind farm or a solar farm uh, at the very beginning stages of the build out? Or is there another point along the way where this might become more attractive with higher IRRs? So for
1: development, it would be high risk, high reward. Primarily because development is like any other development, whether you consider real estate or other, other areas. And that can take up to 10 years or possibly even more. It doesn't involve a whole lot of money because development will be traditionally 5% or less of a total cost of a wind or solar farm. And um, it is more private equity style reward. So you can get um, or... of the overall cost, you're looking at possibly 20 plus percent IRRs. When it comes to construction, traditionally construction has been fairly low cost. There's not a whole lot that can go wrong. You can contractually manage a lot through the construction phase. Um, Time frame involved for construction is traditionally 6 to 12 months. So it's not a a long time like an LNG, which might take uh, three years or, or more for that. And until recently, when supply chain issues have kicked in, where you do have some risk of delays that can interfere with some contractual obligations, construction can be fairly straightforward. But then on the operation side, it's mostly getting control over any technical issues that come up, the general operations and maintenance contractual arrangements.
0: So between construction and operation, We tend to focus more on that side. So how do these projects become profitable? I mean, we kind of understand traditional utilities. We understand oil and gas. Uh, To a certain extent, we even understand uh, nuclear with respect to how that whole process works. With solar and wind, what drives profitability? The profitability of the the projects is associated with
1: um, three components. One is the power sales that you would make to a utility or these days there are a lot of corporations that are also trying to directly obtain power so entities like uh, microsoft or facebook um, these entities are quite heavily involved in direct procurement of energy for either data center or other source other other needs that they may have the second component would be the renewable energy credits that are generated so for every megawatt hour there is a credit that is generated that is tradable. and the third element of this is a tax credit so for wind there's a production tax credit or solar there's investment tax credit and typically the wind farm or the solar farm doesn't have the ability to absorb all these tax credits there's not enough taxable income within the project company so there's going to be partnerships that will come in with entities that do have tax capacity that can create an avenue for monetization of those tax credits. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download.
0: Now, what about job creation? Because critics of, of, of the green energy movement have suggested that, you know, whether you're building an oil pipeline or a natural gas pipeline, be it Keystone or something else that those are big job creation vehicles and can that be said uh, of wind and, and to a lesser extent solar uh,
1: yes I would say that um, national renewable energy labs they have actually a tool that has that has been developed to assess the community net community benefits for a wind and solar facility and one of the examples that uh, I would have is that for a one gigawatt of wind facility, that will support about 44,000 indirect, indirect, and induced jobs in an area, and about 125 or so permanent positions in the operation phase of the project. So these are quite substantial numbers that uh, that, that the, the project support. Uh, and that's not to mention all the community benefits that come from the wind and solar investment in. Rural USA where typically these towns would benefit from property taxes, land leases, like that can go out and support local schools, hospitals, um, any infrastructure, road network, those kind of
0: things that uh, the rural communities may need. yeah even though there's available space in those communities, I mean you still get to a certain extent, particularly in the United States a, a not in my backyard or NIMby response to, these, some of the, to some of those projects. How was that overcome?
1: I think that there's quite a bit that uh, is discussed and there's a fear of the unknown that comes into play. What we see in our practice is that typically when the project is in the construction phase, there is quite a bit of discussion about what possibly the, the, the area will look like once the wind farm is built. Once the project is built, everything quiets down because people realize the net benefit of this and it's not what they thought that it would be in terms of the concerns that they may have. There are true concerns such as environmental risk, that if there are birds or bats that might be in the area that uh, their habitat needs to be managed and some of them might be endangered, or there can be noise coming out of the wind turbines that might impact a local community. Uh, or they can be shadow flicker such a, such that, that the, if the sun is ricocheting off of a blade, it can be bothersome to somebody sitting out on his or her porch. So mm-hmm. all of these issues can be quite well managed. The industry has come along quite a bit to address all of these issues and be a good, responsible citizen of that local community.
0: Now, what about diversification with respect to whether or not these um, types of energy cleaner and greener will do their job in effectively extending our ability to generate uh, power. A lot of folks claim that there's just simply not enough there there to offset the needs that we have that have been historically provided by, you know, coal and wood in the past, natural gas and crude oil today. Do they diversify the power base enough?
1: They, they add to the mix in the, mean, in the interim. So wind and solar are not going to be able to, given the constraints that we just talked about in terms of the grid and the transmission issues, wind and solar are not going to be able to fulfill 100% of the demand of a country, especially in North America, uh, right off the bat. So it adds to the mix it continues to make inroads into the amount of energy that is produced from renewable sources but it's not going to address everything overnight so this is a this is a work in progress but it does add to the diversification mix some fuels for if you think about a utility some fuels are dependent on gas prices which can go from 3 3 dollars or less than 3 dollars per mmbtu through two years ago or three years ago to now at six and seven dollar range so that will expose the utility and the net consumers to high power high power power prices if they solely relied on gas prices on the other side with wind and solar there's no fuel so you have the ability as long as the wind blows or the sun shines you just get to enjoy that power so it definitely adds to the mix but in the long term, I would expect that when hydrogen is a little bit more commercial, that might take over some of that burden that gas has today. But for the time being, it's going to be um, it's going to have its role in the mix, not a sole provider of energy.
0: Now, what about the impact on inflation? I mean, there's been an argument that you know these projects look considerably more attractive when oil and gas prices are high, which generally pushes consumer prices all that much higher because they're so correlated to CPI. Do you need, not permanently, but, but indefinitely long periods of, of high oil and gas prices to make these things work? And if so, when they do start to work, are they disinflationary in the long run?
1: So on the inflation point, there is two components to it. One is the cost component, the other side is the revenue side, the revenue component. On the cost component, a wind farm or a solar farm isn't hit very hard by inflationary pressures, primarily because the component that is associated with technician salaries or the parts coming into the wind farm or the solar farm, they're not a big component of the overall cost structure of of the wind farm uh, or solar farm on an ongoing basis. But on the revenue side, when inflationary pressures come through, they are going to be represented in the power prices in on, on, um, on the exchanges. And a typical renewable energy facility is going to be exposed to some of the uncontracted power where it can capture some of that upside. So on a net net basis, these projects will provide inflationary relief and be a guard against and participate in, that, in, in those inflationary pressures From an investment standpoint as opposed to being negatively impacted
0: by it a final question then, with respect to adoption i mean we've seen some states in the us like california get very aggressive about these things we've seen other states uh to a certain extent reject these notions out of hand of of creating greener cleaner uh energy when you look not just the united states but but the uh, the world with respect to adoption how much longer do you think it'll take before this becomes uh, a more ubiquitous feature of the landscape?
1: That is difficult to uh, to, uh, to answer primarily because each individual country has its own agenda when it comes to renewable energy. And I would say that most of the world at this point has uh, embraced it wholeheartedly. So you see that all the way from Japan to Europe, to China, to other places, to Africa, everywhere, everywhere in the world um, there's an acceptance and an excitement about renewable energy. In the U.S., because we act like 50 individual states when it comes to policy making, that's where things get a little bit more tricky. Um, so, in the Southeast, and as an example of the U.S., there's very little penetration of renewable energy, but when you go to Texas, where their free markets exist, there's a big component of the power, power structure that is being provided by renewable energy. So it's, a, it's an individual discussion that is had at pretty much every state level. And globally though, renewable energy is here to stay. And it's gonna continue to pick up stream theme as we, can, as we make progress.
0: All right, Saad, a pleasure. Thanks for joining us, appreciate your time today.
1: Thank you very much, I appreciate your time as well.
0: Sadcast from Schroeder's Greencoat. And I'm Ron Insana. Thanks for listening to The U.S. Lens. We'll talk to you again soon.
1: Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroeders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Podcast at schroeders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening. But above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up. And investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy.